The alleged spy balloon is down, but the relationship between the U.S. and China is up in the air. Another pain point, Chinese-owned TikTok. Some U.S. lawmakers want it off your phone. We asked Senator Michael Bennett, a member of the Intelligence Committee, to tell us more. For Sunday, February 5th, it's All Things Considered. I'm Michelle Martin. Also in Haiti, street gangs are making daily life intolerable. We ask a reporter what she saw and a former ambassador what she wants the world to do. One of the senior diplomats said, well, we'll wait till it gets worse. Worse? How can it get much worse? There's five million people nearing starvation. And new music from Shania Twain. I just needed to pick myself up, cheer myself up. Started writing songs that made me feel like dancing. First news. Live from NPR News in Washington, I'm Janine Herbst. The Pentagon's week-long monitoring of a Chinese balloon floating above the U.S. has turned into an underwater recovery operation. NPR's Emmy Held has more on efforts to retrieve debris after a U.S. fighter jet shot it down with a missile off the South Carolina coast yesterday. Debris from the balloon has spread over a seven-mile radius, sinking nearly 50 feet down into the Atlantic Ocean. Multiple ships, unmanned vessels, and Navy divers preparing to bring it back up. The goal? To learn more about what China was doing starting January 28th, when the Pentagon says the Chinese surveillance balloon entered U.S. airspace over Alaska. And as it drifted down over Canada, back over the U.S., turning eastward, the Pentagon says they were scrutinizing it. And taking steps to prevent China from collecting sensitive information. Beijing maintains it was a civilian craft blown astray. If the recovery is successful, a senior defense official says they can ascertain the balloon's technical capabilities up close. Amy Held, NPR News. In Texas, the state's governor issued a disaster declaration for several counties after hundreds of thousands of residents were left without power for days. Texas Public Radio's Jerry Clayton reports some 55,000 outages are still reported across the state. Governor Greg Abbott says the emergency declaration will help direct assistance to those who experienced property damage or power outages. He's asking for those affected to report to the state. Many parts of the state were coated in ice during last week's storm, which brought down electric lines and trees. Travis County, where Austin is located, is one of seven counties listed in the disaster declaration. Officials in Austin were heavily criticized for what some say was a bungled response in the wake of the storm with delays in getting power restored. I'm Jerry Clayton in San Antonio. Russian President Vladimir Putin promised Israel he wouldn't kill Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. Former Israeli Prime Minister Naftali Bennett says Putin made that promise during a meeting last year. And Pierce Daniel Estrin has more. Bennett has published a long YouTube video in Hebrew about his time in office, and in it he discusses his meeting with Putin. He says Zelensky asked him to mediate, and 10 days into the invasion, Bennett flew to the Kremlin. Bennett says he told Putin, I need to understand you're giving your word you're not going to kill Zelensky. And Putin said, I will not kill Zelensky. Bennett says he called Zelensky and relayed Putin's promise. Bennett says at the time, Putin also agreed not to demand Ukraine disarmament, and Zelensky agreed to stop pushing to join NATO. Bennett's mediation was short-lived. Today, Israel still refuses to aid Ukraine militarily because of Israel's security ties with Russia in Syria. Daniel Estrin, NPR News, Tel Aviv. And you're listening to NPR News from Washington. This is 90.9 WBUR. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. 
The Boston Medical Center is working around the clock to reopen its emergency department after a pipe burst during last night's cold snap. As WBUR's Walter Wathman reports, the hospital expects the ER to remain closed for at least another day. BMC says they safely moved all patients to other parts of the hospital when the pipe broke and is currently diverting ambulances to other area hospitals. A hospital spokesman says they hope to complete the repairs and reopen the ER by Tuesday. BMC's outpatient clinics will have normal hours tomorrow. Saturday's frigid temperatures also caused pipes to freeze and burst across the region, from steamships on the Cape to the Wang Theater in Boston. For 90.9 WBUR, I'm Walter Wuthman. Two Massachusetts Air National Guard fighter jets were part of the military operation that shot down that suspected Chinese spy balloon off the South Carolina coast yesterday. The jets, stationed at Barnes Air National Guard Base in Westfield, were part of a support team for the aircraft that shot down the surveillance balloon. Six months after the Supreme Court overturned the right to an abortion, data from Planned Parenthood shows a surge in people traveling to New England for the procedure from states where abortion is now banned or restricted. The reproductive health care provider says Massachusetts has seen a 6% increase. Planned Parenthood clinics in Rhode Island and Connecticut have seen a 68% jump in those seeking abortions. Boston Mayor Michelle Wu and uh, School Superintendent Mary Skipper tomorrow mark the arrival of 20 electric school buses. The mayor says the clean-running buses will help the climate and improve the lives of students, their families, and residents. And efforts to end the week-long teacher strike in Woburn are underway. The school committee and teachers union are meeting. There is an agreement on a contract, but they have not been able to come to terms on a return-to-work agreement. In the forecast, cloudy skies overnight with lows falling to the 30s, clouds early tomorrow, then it becomes sunny with temperatures in the mid-40s. Right now, 45 degrees in Boston. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by the Annie E. Casey Foundation, using research and evidence to develop solutions that help families and communities create a brighter future for young people. More information is available at aecf.org. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to start with the dramatic confrontation between the U.S. and China over that giant balloon discovered floating at high altitude over the U.S. last week. If you recall, China says it was just a weather balloon inadvertently blown off course. The Biden administration says China was using it for surveillance and shot it down yesterday. And the administration canceled or rather postponed a planned visit to Beijing by the U.S. Secretary of State. Earlier today, Beijing criticized the shootdown, calling it an overreaction. And the Chinese foreign ministry said Beijing, quote, reserves the right to make further responses if necessary, unquote. We're going to hear now from Senator Michael Bennett, a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. He's a Democrat from Colorado, and he's with us now. Senator Bennett, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Michelle. Do you think China might actually retaliate in some way? Well, I think they might They might try to find some way to retaliate. But I think the idea that they said this is an overreaction is is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, imagine what Chinese would the Chinese would have done if this had been an American balloon uh, wandering over 
mainland China. So I think the Biden administration has done the appropriate thing, and we'll have to see if they retaliate. Can I briefly ask you about the mission itself? As you've no doubt seen, some of your Republican colleagues are saying the administration waited too long. They should have acted right away. Politics aside, there is an argument that by waiting to shoot down the balloon until it was over the ocean, the U.S. may have undermined its chances of finding out what the intelligence mechanisms on the payload actually were. Is that fair? Uh, I think putting politics aside, all of us are going to have a responsibility to look and see what the intelligence shows us. I'm on the intelligence committee, and I'm looking forward, hopefully, to being briefed this week about what our folks have found. I have no doubt that the intelligence community, along with DOD, um, uh, had a point of view about what the optimal recovery would look like for the United States. I'm sure they shared that with the president, and I'd be very surprised if he didn't act in accordance with that. So let's see what the intelligence tells us. So as you know, the Secretary of State, quote-unquote, indefinitely postponed his trip to China this week. Would it be fair to say that one reason the administration postponed the trip, besides making a statement of disapproval, was that they didn't want him and his delegation on China's territory knowing they were going to shoot down the balloon? But having said all that, isn't the time to talk when you're having a serious decision? Disagreement? I think that uh, pulling this down was exactly the right thing to do, um, uh, and and I'm you know I'm glad Tony Blinken had been planning on going there. I think it's important for us to continue to have high-level discussions with the Chinese. But this uh, this affair with the balloon is is just another reckless and unacceptable move by China. I think the administration needs to be very clear that this is absolutely unacceptable and. And one way of doing it is by pulling down our diplomatic engagement. We can obviously put, put it back up later um, when, when tempers have cooled. So let's turn to TikTok, because that's why we initially reached out to you, actually called you earlier in the week before this whole thing, you know, uh, surfaced. Um, This week, you joined calls from other lawmakers to ban it from Apple, from the Apple and the Google app stores. TikTok has more than 100 million users in the U.S., and it's owned by China, as we said. What worries you the most about TikTok? Well, what worries me the most about TikTok is that it... Uh, over 100 million Americans are, are using it, uh, 80 minutes or 82 minutes a day. That's roughly three hours a week. And the, the obligations of TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, under Chinese law, requires it uh, at a moment's notice when Beijing asks for it, demands it, uh, to share any data that it has acquired on the site. And I think that that could force TikTok to surrender sensitive data from Americans tweak its algorithm to advance the interests of the Chinese Communist Party. And I think that's bad for the United States. China is pursuing a China first policy by any means necessary, illicit or illicit. And the question for the United States, I think, whether it's about TikTok or anything else, is whether we're content to be collateral damage. And I think instead we should be offering a compelling alternative to the Chinese model. And um, And there's not a reason for us to be allowing Beijing to broadcast TikTok to a third of our population, our entire population. So, so think ad- about, sorry, go, go ahead. ahead. No, I was going to say in advance of our conversation with you, we called TikTok because you you made your point of view on this uh, a public earlier. We talked to Michael Beckerman. He's vice president of public policy at TikTok. And I'll just play what he said to us about the user data issue. We've said time and time again, that we would not share Americans' user data with the Chinese government. We have to comply with U.S. law. There has been examples for other companies where 
Americans user data has been taken and shared with foreign governments. I mean, these things have happened with other companies and been proven. Um, this has not come up with us. I presume they've made this argument to you and other lawmakers as well. Why don't you buy that? I just think, I mean, there's no, there's no reason at all that we should believe that statement when we know that ByteDance is subject to Chinese law that tells that parent company of TikTok that it has to surrender surrender whatever data it asks for. And I'd rather we be safe than sorry here. And they say that they have tightened their security uh, protocols. He says that uh, America's, Americans' data would be stored securely in the U.S. with access protocols that are tighter than any existing app or tech company at the moment. He says that they've been working on this, particularly in Texas. A number of states have already moved to ban TikTok from, say, public employees' phones, etc. Uh, I presume they've shared this information with you as well. You don't buy it? Well, there's a reason this is being banned by public employees' phones, you know, from the federal government to state governments all over across the country. And I think it's because people have been briefed on the same things that we've seen on the intelligence community, which is that um, we're very worried about what Beijing might ultimately do with this data. And I'm obviously willing to consider, and I'm sure anybody else would be, what changes they would want to make to try to make the United States feel secure about um, uh, feel secure about its presence in our in our country, but so far we haven't seen that. And let me just go back to the balloon for a second, Michelle, and ask you or, or our listen, your listeners to consider whether or not in a billion years we could imagine that the Chinese Communist Party sitting there in Beijing would ever allow the United States to broadcast anything across the entire the entire country of mainland China? And the answer to that is obviously no. That was Senator Michael Bennett. He's a Democrat of Colorado. He's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee. Senator Bennett, thanks so much for your time. Thanks for having me. President Biden will give his State of the Union address on Tuesday. That's the annual event where he delivers his policy agenda to Congress. The address comes at a time when he's tackling a lot of politically charged issues like high inflation and police violence, all while he's trying to find his footing with a new Republican majority in the House that's intent on using their oversight authority to the fullest. So while the address is technically to Congress, it's also a chance to speak directly to the American people and for that matter to the world. So we wondered if it still does. Does the event still have an impact as a television event and as a communications tool? We called NPR media correspondent David Folkenflick for his take. David, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us once again. Pleasure. So just to set the history here, the president is required to deliver a report to Congress, but he doesn't have to give a speech. He could just send a letter. And actually, presidents did that for years until Woodrow Wilson personally appeared before Congress in 1913. And then Franklin Roosevelt adopted that practice. And since then, it's become a tradition for the president to actually show up in person and deliver a speech. So is this a big deal? I mean, is this something that a lot of people watch? Yeah, it's the biggest night for the president in terms of on an ordinary given year talking to the public, talking to the American people. You can say that it's not all that it once was and we can get into that. But, you know, 38 million some people, uh, Americans watched it last year on television. And that does not include all of the people who saw elements of it on subsequent news reports, radio reports, excerpted on podcasts or YouTube presentations or, or on social media. 
When you say that it isn't what it was, tell me what you mean by that. I looked back three decades ago to Bill Clinton's first State of the Union address, and Clinton got almost twice of the audience that Joe Biden got last year. So that tells you that there is a real winnowing of what we think of as the conventional linear television audience that is real-time television audience. And yet, I do think that there's this echo effect, uh, you know, the ability to create viral moments depending on the skill of the rhetoric and the the president delivering it and the way in which they construct the argument they're making to the American people. President Biden isn't, how can I put this, is not necessarily known for his abilities in this area. He's gaff prone. I don't think it's, it's I don't think it's a political statement to say that. He, you know, he's prone to misspeaking. I don't know how significant that is. I think maybe we'll find out. But what what are you looking for as you as you evaluate this event? Right. The State of the Union kind of makes critics of us all, right? It's a, oftentimes a question of looking at the performance. Joe Biden is, as you say, often gaff prone has been for decades. He has struggled with a stutter that makes it at times, you know, a real challenge for him to surmount certain words and he has to use others to get through it. He's talked in sometimes kind of uh, in a very heartfelt and eloquent way about that challenge for himself. He needs to show the country that he has a coherent worldview at a time where, you know, we are funding the Ukraine battle against the Russian invasion. We have these increasing and at times a, a little baffling tensions with China that we've seen play out over the years and, and just in the past couple of days. So he's going to have to be able to unify the nation and say he's got this even at a time where he no longer has full democratic control of Congress. And therefore, a lot of what he's going to talk about is going to be the successes he's had as opposed to what he's going to be able to accomplish in the year ahead. That was NPR's media correspondent, David Folkenflik. David, thank you so much. You bet. And on Tuesday night, we're going to do something that we've never done before at NPR. We're going to put out a bilingual broadcast of the State of the Union Address. This will be a second program. You can join A. Martinez for in-depth analysis and reaction in both English and in Spanish. It's NPR's special bilingual coverage of the 2023 State of the Union Address. We hope you'll check with your member station for details and at NPR.org. You're listening to NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. I'm John Carpilio in Boston. Glad you're with us. Up next at 6, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by UMass Chan Medical School. Proud to be named one of Boston Globe's top places to work. Learn more at umassmed.edu globe. Mayor Michelle Wu wants to increase opportunities for economic growth within communities of color, starting with Mattapan. Listen as WBUR's Rupa Chinoy walks you through the city's proposed plan in the Common podcast. Follow the Common in all pod places. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Cambridge Naturals, a local source for health and wellness since 1974, in Cambridge, Brighton, and at CambridgeNaturals.com. Cloudy skies overnight, lows drop to the 30s, clouds early, then sunshine tomorrow, temperatures in the mid-40s. It's 45 degrees now in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky is warning that Ukrainian troops are facing a difficult situation in three heavily contested towns in the Donetsk region. Zelensky says Russia is committing more troops to the fight. 
Iran State News Agency says the Supreme Leader has pardoned tens of thousands of prisoners, including some who had been arrested in the anti-government protests. Those protests started in September after the death of a young woman detained by the so-called morality police enforcing a strict Islamic dress code. And at the weekend box office, after seven weeks in the top spot, Avatar The Way of Water was knocked out of the lead as the thriller Knock at the Cabin opened with an estimated $14 million. I'm Janine Herbst, NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Melville Charitable Trust, committed to ensuring all people have a safe, stable, and affordable home that allows them to thrive. Information about ways to prevent and solve homelessness is at melvilletrust.org. And from the Walton Family Foundation, working to solve social and environmental problems to improve lives today and benefit future generations. More information is at waltonfamilyfoundation.org. This is NPR. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. We're going to spend some time now talking about the frightening news and images coming out of Haiti recently. We're talking about businesses shuttering their doors, masked police officers flooding the streets on motorcycles, firing rounds into the air to protest a slew of killings of fellow police officers amid spiraling gang violence. And the images on social media are even worse, of kidnappings and tortured bodies. Chaos seems to be overtaking the Caribbean nation, all part of the ongoing going political instability that's ensued since the killing of President Jovenel Moise back in 2021. Many legislators have fled the country and there haven't been national elections since 2016. In a recent statement, the UN humanitarian chief in Haiti said close to 60 percent of Port-au-Prince, the capital, is dominated by gangs who seem to be gaining more control every day. Megan Janetsky covers Cuba and the Caribbean for the Associated Press. She recently spent two weeks in Haiti, where she was actually able to sit down with one of Haiti's most feared gang leaders, Jimmy Cherizier, or as he's internationally known, Barbecue. Megan Janetsky, welcome. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So just if you just start by just setting the scene for us about what's currently going on and how it seems to have escalated over the past month. Absolutely. So, you know, the U.N. has the estimate of 60 percent of the cities controlled by gangs. If you ask Haitians there, they're going to tell you it's more like 100 percent. These gangs have a very firm grip on society right now. You walk in the street and there's just a feeling that anything could happen at any moment, which is just how Haiti is nowadays. You have rampant kidnappings with uh, ransoms up to a million dollars. You have horrifying stories of gang rapes, people getting caught in the crossfire between gangs and police that are incredibly under-equipped to handle the situation. And now, you know, with what some people describe as a de facto dictatorship, basically a, a skeleton government in Haiti, you have these gangs kind of assuming a role of even like a government in a lot of these areas. They're the ones that control the day-to-day lives of most Haitians now, where the government is absent. As I said earlier, your team was able to secure an interview with Jimmy Cherizier, 
a.k.a. barbecue, which is kind of disturbing on its face. So here's a little bit of what he said. He says, I'm not a thief. I'm not involved in kidnapping. I'm not a rapist. I'm just carrying out a social fight to claim a better life. So tell me a bit more about how he sees himself. Yeah, this is a man that is sanctioned by the U.N. He has accusations of masterminding massacres. His group, the G9, is one of the most powerful gang federations in Port-au-Prince. And late last year, he was the one behind the fuel blockade that basically paralyzed Port-au-Prince for two months. And you know, he, the way he pitches himself to the world now is basically this revolutionary. He um, tries to show himself as like someone that's advocating for the people against a corrupt government and a corrupt system. But, you know, just spending time with him, so much of what he told us was just, you know, heavily spun and um, very clearly trying to project something that wasn't real. For instance, um, you know, we were surrounded when we interviewed him by men with machine guns and masks, and uh, we were not allowed to film any of it. All he would let us film was him showing off um, the good he's done for this neighborhood where he's accused of uh, perpetrating a massacre. How do people, like, are kids going to school every day? How do people get groceries, their basic needs met? I mean, are the banks open? How, how are people getting their basic needs met? It really, truly depends. I've talked to many parents there that kind of have stopped sending their kids to school. We were there when there was a big protest by rebel police officers protesting gang killings of um, police, which have been mounting in numbers and quite grisly. And um, that just shut down the entire country for two days. Markets were closed. Banks were closed. Everything was closed. So sometimes you're able to get things. Sometimes you're able to send your kids to school. Sometimes it's, it's just impossible. And if you think about it, you know, it doesn't even just extend to markets. We were in hospitals in the gang blockade um, a few months ago. You know, people couldn't get basic medical services because it was just too dangerous to walk out on the streets. The police protests that shut down the country for two days, you described them in an article as rebel police officers. So how is law enforcement functioning in this environment? You know, it's really not. Um, you know, the, the police force is incredibly depleted. And in the past few months, you've seen a growing level of uh, targetings of police officers. The protests this past, this past few weeks were due to these grisly killings of six police officers. Following their killing, the gangs mutilated their body. There were really horrifying videos of it. And you have this group that is kind of like a confusing mix of active police officers, inactive police officers, and some even say um, there may be gang members mixed in. But it's a group that is basically demanding that these grisly killings of police stop and that, you know, if you talk to police officers, they just want more supplies and reinforcements to, you know, take on the gangs in the country. And right now, they they just don't have that. So before we let you go, in your reporting, you talk about how one of the police officers' uh, family members are trying to navigate this kind of horrific situation. They're waiting to see if they'll be approved for a visa to travel to the U.S. Can you just uh, just 
what does their story tell us? I spoke to one officer, the wife of an officer, who was uh, disappeared in a recent attack. And they um, are scared now. They want to leave Haiti because they seem to assume, you know, he was, he was killed. And their husband spent years fighting these gangs um, and feel that they could get targeted too. They, um, a few years ago, applied to try and get a visa and get out of Haiti and um, were never approved for anything. And now they're just kind of in limbo, like a lot of Haitians. They want to leave but have no way to do it. You know, it's an island. Megan Janetsky is the Cuba and Caribbean correspondent for the Associated Press. She was recently in Haiti reporting on the growing influence of the gangs there. Megan Janetsky, thanks so much for talking to us and sharing this reporting with us. Thank you. We're going to seek additional perspective on this story now from a former U.S. ambassador to Haiti, Pamela White. She served there from 2012 to 2015. She's been arguing for some time now that Haiti needs an international force to quell the violence and help bring back stability. Ambassador White, welcome back to the program. Thanks for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me. We last spoke with you in October after you testified before the House Foreign Affairs Committee. You argued then that Haiti needed help to deal with the spiraling situation, and you called then for boots on the ground. And after hearing our conversation with AP reporter Megan Janetsky, I can imagine that that only reinforces your view. Everything she had to say just points to the fact that we have got to do something. It just makes me so angry that for months and months and months, the reality of what's going on in Haiti has been there for all to see, and yet no action, no action. You know, what are we going to do? I, I, one of the senior diplomats said, well, we'll wait till it gets worse. Worse? How can it get much worse? There's 5 million people nearing starvation. Somewhere between 60 and 80, 90 percent of Port-au-Prince is run over by gangs. 20% of the kids are not getting enough to eat day in and day out right now as we speak. I mean, it can't get worse. It is worse. And to not do anything quickly and concretely, in my opinion, is just plain criminal. The U.N. Secretary General has also said an international force is needed, but there are few takers so far, as you were just alluding to. Yeah. Uh, Jamaica's prime minister recently announced that he would be willing to send soldiers and police officers to Haiti, but, but what does a strategic intervention look like? We've got to have a transitional group, and I, that transitional group, in my opinion, should not involve anyone who's had anything to do with politics or gangs uh, in the last five years in Haiti. I mean, we've got to have somebody that totally above any suspicion of corruption. We, we need a high, high level group that no one can deny are the experts in this area to go down there and have a solid big presence and come up with a transition plan that we can get Haiti, you know, on some kind of strategic plan to go forward. And the part of that plan obviously is going to have to be security. If Jamaica is the only one willing to come to the front, let's get them over there if that's what, what we can. But we've got to get them everything else that they need. We need to start recruiting immediately for more police, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And are there bad guys in the police force? You bet you there are. Yes. And we need to get them out. When I was there as ambassador, we had NYPD policemen, and we had Miami policemen down there inserted into the Haitian police force. And they were fantastic because they were mentors. They were overseers. They made sure that the special teams were trained. They went with them on operations. We can do this again, but we can't do nothing.
if you know anything about the history of the country, you can certainly make a moral argument. Yeah. But what is the geopolitical argument? What is the national security argument? What is your most persuasive argument here? Well, <laughs> yeah, well, they're leaving. You know, the schools aren't functioning. The banks aren't functioning. The clinics aren't functioning. You know what's functioning? The passport office. You know, two days ago, there was a massive outbreak of violence in front of the passport office. The people are desperate to get a passport because this new ruling by the Biden administration says that if you can find somebody in the United States that has the means to support you and you have a valid Haitian passport, then we'll consider letting you get into the States legally. And so, you know, they're fighting. They're desperate to get that passport. They're literally, you know, crawling all over each other to get into the office. And that's caused by they need to get out of there. Do we want hundreds of thousands of Haitians on our shores? I mean, I've never liked this argument. I think we should be doing something in Haiti because we're the United States of America. And we have a long history of being involved in that country for the for good and for bad often. But do something because we can. And we're the country that stands for doing uh, you know, helping countries that need us out. But if you don't like that argument, if you want to go to the national security argument, okay, I can go there. There's going to be tens of thousands, like you've never seen, you know, getting into any rickety uh, boat whatsoever or anything else that they can put two feet on. And they're going to be on our shores and it's going to be a political problem for the Biden administration and it's going to be a national security problem. You've got to do something. And by the way, the people that say that all oh, the Haitian people don't want a intervention force, blah, blah, blah. Just on March 1st, there was um, some a group called the Diagnostic Development Group issued a really well-done study that they, they had a wonderful cross-section of the population. They have a database of about 5,000 people that they use. In normal times, they go door-to-door, -door, but this time they went phone-by-phone. -phone. They use phone calls. And 69% of the Haitian people said, we need an intervention now. This is a brand new study. It really needs to be listened to. 71% of the Haitian National Police cannot control the gangs. 64% of them said that the gangs are taking over more and more and more every single day. You've got to listen to the voice of the people. And I think if we had this top-notch, high-powered mediation group that they could use the Diagnostic Development Group to go out and get the voice of the Haitian people unfiltered through their networks. And that would be a huge plus towards any plan going forward. So before we let you go, according to previous reporting by NPR, uh, Prime Minister Henri has called for a new round of elections with the aim of swearing in a new government by early next year. Is that even possible? I mean, I have tons of friends in in Haiti. And I mean, I've talked to them, I talk to them all the time. There's not one person that I know, or any of the experts that I talk to all the time on Haiti that think that it's possible to organize elections, especially not under Henri. Henri is not seen by the Haitian people as a legitimate leader. He's just not. So anything that he comes up with, with no matter who says, oh, yeah, that's a good idea, then no one, the people on the ground are not going to participate as long as he's, he's in the lead. It's just not going to happen. That was former U.S. Ambassador to Haiti, Pamela White. Ambassador, thank you so much for joining us once again. Thank you so much for having me.
You're listening to All Things Considered from NPR News. Last spring, the U.S. government took a major step toward owning up to a shameful chapter in our nation's history. The Interior Department released the results of its investigation into the federal Indian boarding school system. The scathing report detailed abuse and misconduct that took place at hundreds of schools across 37 states or then territories for more than a century. As part of the process of healing and accountability, Interior Secretary Deb Holland is on a listening tour to hear these stories firsthand to allow Native people to tell their own stories in their own way, many for the first time. NPR Sequoia Carrillo attended two of these sessions in Arizona. It's nine in the morning, about 20 miles south of Phoenix in a high school gymnasium. The gym is silent as the room full of people shift in their seats. No one wants to be the first one to speak. Finally, a tall woman with dark hair stands up and walks to the microphone. She starts in English, but introduces herself in Odom. Uh, Madam Secretary and Assistant uh, Secretary Nguyen. They call me April Ignacio, and I am providing testimony on behalf of my family. Many people, like Ignacio, brought written testimony that was pages long, so they didn't forget anything. I am a a citizen of the Tanawatam Nation, and my family in particular has five generations of uh, boarding school attendees and survivors. That's exactly the kind of thing Secretary Holland flew over 2,000 miles to hear. I want you all to know that I'm here with you on this journey. I will listen, I will grieve with you, I will weep alongside you, and I will feel the pain that you feel. Holland is Navajo and the first Indigenous woman to serve in her position. She's also personally invested in this work. Her grandparents attended federal boarding schools. Ignacio went on to tell her own grandparents' experiences of abuse and neglect and the lasting impacts of it on her family. As rows of tribal citizens sat facing the secretary, some said her background and understanding made them feel empowered to tell their stories for the first time. June Marie Waneka drove over 400 miles to attend the second stop of the weekend, deep in the Navajo Nation. From here to Window Rock, Arizona is about seven hours, so... That's how far it is, but uh, it's quite a a ways down there. (laughs) She first attended one of the government-run boarding schools in the 1950s at just six years old. I fought to live each day or two, whatever, and he went through to, to be able to make it through. And I have scars in my heart and in my mind. After the meeting, she choked up as she recalled the moment she got to tell the secretary her story. I thanked him for the opportunity to speak. And he brought me peace to know that it was finally spoken out. Waneka said that opportunity was worth the drive and the gas money. She said she felt it was her duty to pay it forward. I look at my grandkids now and how small they are. And and I thought, that's how small I was when I was treated like that. And I thought, boy, I'm so glad I made it through those things. And and uh, so I, I found peace in talking about what had happened to me. And an added bonus, a selfie with Secretary Holland. I had my picture take you with her. I was, oh, it was an honor. Sequoia Carrillo, NPR News, Many Farms, Arizona. 
This is NPR News. Presidents use the State of the Union speech to tick off accomplishments and goals. The State of the Union, at their very best, these are often eloquent laundry lists, but they're also political speeches. What can President Biden say that would influence a new Congress and the country? Monday on Morning Edition from NPR News. This is 90.9 WBUR and WBUR.org. Good evening. I'm John Carpilio. Up next at 6 o'clock, it's Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me. We're funded by you, our listeners, and by Zevin Asset Management, building socially responsible investment portfolios that help create a healthy planet. Learn how to have impact at Zevin.com. Cloudy skies overnight as temperatures tumble back into the 30s. And then tomorrow we start out with clouds, but then it becomes sunny with mid-40s, 45 degrees in Boston. I'm Janine Herbst with these headlines. An underwater recovery effort is underway to retrieve the remains of the alleged Chinese surveillance balloon the U.S. military shot down off the coast of South Carolina yesterday. Texas Governor Greg Abbott issued a disaster declaration for several counties after hundreds of thousands of residents were left without power for days. Some 55,000 outages are still reported across the state. This after parts of Texas were coated in ice during last week's storm. And President Biden delivers the State of the Union address Tuesday night before a joint session of Congress. It's his first since Republicans took control of the House. He's expected to discuss the war in Ukraine, gun violence, and the economy. I'm Janine Herb. NPR News. Support for NPR comes from this station and from Jarl and Pamela Moan, focusing on civil liberties, foster youth, public radio, and the arts. From Made in Cookware, partnering with chefs like Tom Colicchio to bring professional-grade cookware to restaurants and home kitchens. Their cookware can be found at madeincookware.com. And from the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, helping NPR advance journalistic excellence in the digital age. This is All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. Let's talk about music's biggest night, the Grammy Awards. The 2023 awards have actually already started in Los Angeles. Dozens of winners have already collected their prizes. And of course, lots of big names are scheduled to appear on the glitzy live telecast tonight. Now, if you follow these things, you know that in recent years, some critics and some performers have been giving side eye to the Grammys, saying the awards don't really reflect the best and freshest work. Some argue that the idea of judging art in this way is just wrong in its face. But we're asking a different question. We're asking if the Grammys still mean something to the nominees and winners, especially money-wise. Joining us to talk about this is NPR culture correspondent Anastasia Siulkas. Anastasia, welcome. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for letting me be here. So first of all, the front runner in the Grammy race this year is Beyonce. She's up for nine awards, including record, song, and album of the year. I'm number one. I'm the only one. Don't even waste your time trying to compete with me. Tonight, if she wins just four of those, she could potentially walk away with more Grammy Awards than anyone in history, right? But even if she pulls that off, Beyonce is already 
Hmm, Anastasia, how can we put this in the stratosphere she of fame <laughs> and wealth? So if she wins, do those Grammys make any difference to her bottom line? I would say, Michelle, this is really about bragging rights. She's already the female artist with the most Grammys in history. She just announced this upcoming tour that's already selling out instantaneously. Last month, she did a one-hour private show in Dubai for which she was reportedly paid $24 million. So I'm really not convinced that a few more or fewer awards are really going to do anything for her bottom line. There's Beyonce and then there's not Beyonce. Yeah. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so let's so That's let's, a fair distinction. Exactly. So let's go to the not Beyonce side of, of, of the ledger. Do do the Grammys still mean something to artists who have not already gotten to that level? First of all, the number of Grammys that are given out every year fluctuates pretty tremendously and regularly. New categories get introduced. Old ones get phased out or streamlined. The Recording Academy, which is this nonprofit that gives out the awards, they're giving out awards this year in 91 categories. And that means there are a lot of people who really see this still as a standard bearer. And a lot of those people work in niche genres, everything from blues to reggae to writing the best liner notes. And for those folks, having that Grammy seal of approval is truly still a door opener. It means they can attract new audiences. They can generate future gigs. Their streaming and sales go up. And so for those folks, the Grammy bump is real. Could you just tell me a little bit more about what that is? What What's the Grammy bump? Let's look at Megan Thee Stallion, for instance. I'm a savage. Classy, bougie, ratchet. In 2019, her career was percolating for sure. She had her first big hit that year with Hot Girl Summer. Towards the very end of the year, she came and did a Tiny Desk concert. And I would say there's a case to be made that her career really took off, both in terms of mainstream attention and in terms of financial possibilities, after she won Best New Artist at the Grammy Awards in 2021. And by the night of the Grammy telecast that year, her digital sales had zoomed up over 178%. And by the end of that year, she had signed a first look production deal with Netflix. Now, okay, I'm thinking about last year. Lots of folks were surprised when the band leader and composer John Baptiste took home Album of the Year. That's right. He won five Grammys last year, including Album of the Year, which is the biggest prize of the night for his album, We Are. Many longtime Grammy watchers would say that his win, though it was surprising in several ways for the so-called traditional Grammy voters who skew older and love old-sounding music, maybe not so surprising. It hit a lot of sweet spots for that voting group. But his music, more importantly, was brand new to many music fans who were watching the telecast. Uh, according to Billboard, his album sales skyrocketed more than 2,700 percent immediately following those Grammy wins. But is there a case, though, can you think of an example where a Grammy win 
did not help an artist at all. There is an old joke that best new artist is actually a curse. Uh, and that dates way back before Millie Vanilli, you may recall, won in 1990. Um, but honestly, with more recent winners in that category, like Adele, Chance the Rapper, uh, Billie Eilish, maybe that era is behind us. Maybe we can talk about a real Grammy bump for all kinds of winners. All right, you've convinced me. That was NPR <laughs> culture correspondent Anastasia Tsiolkas. Anastasia, thanks so much. Thanks for having me. And finally today, I know you know my next guest. I mean, how could you not? Shania Twain is only the best-selling woman artist in country music and one of the best-selling musical artists ever. After a hard scrabble childhood and some dramatic career swerves worthy of its own country album, she's delivered song after song that have become dance floor classics. And now, in her latest album, the queen of pop country is calling us to the dance floor once again. The album is called Queen of Me, and Shania Twain is here with us now to talk more about it. Welcome, Queen. I gladly give you the title. Thanks for joining us. <laughs> I'll take it. I'll take it. Anyways, thank you. It's, it's nice to talk to you. So many things to talk about. I don't know how we can fit it all in, but we'll try. So this is your first album since 2017. So many things have happened in that time that affected so many people, including COVID. So what were some of the ideas and experiences that found their way into this album? Well, because this album was written during COVID, as I always do, I use songwriting as my therapy and, you know, my go-to solitary time. But with the forced uh, isolation and everything, I just needed to pick myself up, cheer myself up, and started writing songs that made me feel like, you know, dancing and put me in a good mood. So the album Queen of Me came out of it, which ended up being a very quite upbeat and uh, chirpy album. I think that's true, but let me just play, since we were just talking about COVID, I just want to play the track titled Inhale, Exhale, Air. Mm -hmm. And then we'll listen to that and talk a little bit more. Here it is. Taste it, don't waste it. Take it all in while you can. Uh-huh. it, fly it, skydive it. Just that song just does so many things. I just wanted to. I mean, I, I'm just thinking about so many things when I hear it. Um, and I think I have this right that you did get COVID at one point too. Am I right about that? I I, I did, but I got it um, quite severely because I got the COVID pneumonia, and mm. um, so I ended up being air vacked oh, um, to an unavailable bed and uh, hospitalized there. So I mean. Obviously, I made it through, which is fabulous, but it took, you know, several tries of um, the uh, plasma therapy to get me through it. And when I got out of that hospital, I, I, for, the timing was amazing. And I just, I saw somebody 
talking about air and the blessing of air and without it, of course, we can't live and how not to take it for granted. I just started writing this song about all the things that we can do with air other than the obvious, um, which is to live and breathe. But I wanted to get more playful with it and more inspirational with it. And I, I turned it into a song. So, you know, obviously we can we need air to sail. We need air to blow bubbles. We need air for um, more obviously to, for life, but it was just, I started dreaming and, and, and letting my mind fly, I guess, if you will. It's the most inspired song I wrote for this album. Does that does does songwriting? Forgive me for even asking it like this way, but because it's such a ridiculous question. But apologize in advance. But does songwriting come easily to you? I mean, it just seems like um, you've been so prolific over the years, and it just—I don't know. It just—is it, it as easy for you as it seems? I mean, it just seems to kind of flow out of you. It does flow out of me. I guess it's more when you get down to crafting an actual song. Is the song going to be? Um, a strong song? Is it going to be a song that, you know, others can relate to? Just the actual process of writing a song is constant for me. I'm always writing a song. <laughs> it, I understand that the order of the songs on the album, so I apologize for jumping into the middle there because that is just, uh, it is one of the, it's one of my favorites. Who am I kidding? But um, but I understand that the order of the songs is important in the way you construct your album. So I just want to play one of those that was near the beginning. It's called Brand New. So I'll play a little bit and then we'll talk more. You break, you sting, you tell you though it's actually kind of a an intense message here uh -huh. in this song i mean it's got a great beat and it's got this beautiful sort of buoyancy to it but talk a little bit about about that and, and i kind of in a way it's kind of a shania twain signature isn't it to take these really hard thoughts and to make it something that people can kind of hear and receive in a joyous way but just if you just talk a little bit about the song and why it is where it is in the album i think uh, love can be that graphic <laughs> emotionally and for me what works best personally um, is in getting messages across is with contrast because um, it, the, the contrast highlights uh, the drama more and I just enjoy writing that way so it works best as an upbeat song rather than in a a ballad for me. Uh, maybe Adele would write it as a ballad. <laughs> that, that, that would work for her. I, I think maybe for my own style of of delivering a song um, that has angst in it uh, feels just better with more attitude, I guess. You think, you think, you think too much. You think too much of yourself. Oh, you're so you're so, you're so in love. You're so in love with yourself. 
Remember, man, I feel like a woman. We played that at the beginning. Your hit from 1997. It became a TikTok trend, which brought you to a whole new generation of fans. And then, of course, you made a surprise appearance at Harry Styles' set with Coachella. I was just wondering, like, what has that been like, having a song, you know, take on new life in a new medium? It's really fantastic. It's re-energized me in so many ways. It inspires me to know that or to watch in person as it's happening, my music reuniting me with basically fans that are now, you know, in their 20s and 30s that were the little kids in my audiences all those years ago. So it's like a reunion. And, you know, they would have been who knows what age, three, six, ten years old, and now they've grown into people like Harry Styles who can call me up himself and say, hey, you want to come up on stage and sing one of my favorite songs of yours with me? So... It's just fabulous. Well, before we let you go, you've had a career that many people can only dream of. You know, numerous hit singles, millions in sales, Grammy Awards, a Las Vegas residency. Is there something that you have not done that you would like to do? And not to mention, of course, Beauty and the Beast. Forgot to mention again, playing Mrs. Potts. Oh, that was absolutely a dream and very unexpected. There are so many things. I've got a huge bucket list, but I'm going to have to live to be 200 at least in order to fulfill them all. So, um, you know, I'm somebody that really always has something lined up to do to keep busy and to enjoy. One of my dreams has always been to not write songs for myself only, which is I've only ever really focused on songs that I'm going to record. So I'd love to just write music where I'm not thinking about myself as the artist and, um, you know, just write things for other people's uh, styles and genres and, and explore that. Well, you know, I'm sure that uh, people would take your call. I'm pretty sure. <laughs> so. Oh, well, thanks so much for talking with us. What what uh, what song would you like to go out on? Mm, I think I would love to go. Oh, how about uh, Last Day of Summer? Shania Twain is a multi-award winning musician and songwriter. Her latest album is titled Queen of Me. Shania Twain, thank you so much for joining us. It's really been a pleasure to talk with you. Thank you. Thanks for having me. For Sunday, that's All Things Considered from NPR News. I'm Michelle Martin. And a gentle reminder, on Tuesday night, we're going to try something new for us at NPR. We're going to offer a bilingual broadcast of the State of the Union Address. This will be an additional offering along with